I'm Riaz Akbat. It's Thursday the 4th of March and this is Guardian Daily. Today, Gordon Brown called him a man of deep principle and passionate idealism. But tributes came in from across the political spectrum after the death of former Labour leader Michael Foote. He was a Labour man through and through. He joined the Labour Party uh, in the mid-1930s because of the poverty that he saw when he was working in Liverpool. And, uh, you know, he became very much the leader of the left after the death of his great hero, uh, Anarin Bevan. The mother of murdered toddler James Bolger says John Venables is behind bars where he belongs. But the Ministry of Justice refuses to say why. At this stage, I'm afraid I can't say anything more. There's a worldwide injunction on John Venables in relation to his new identity. We're with Britain's Olympic gold medalist Amy Williams on her return from skeleton Bob's success in Vancouver to a parade in her hometown of Bath. She's a Bath girl. girl, And we're very Bathonian, yeah. We're very proud of her. And as Hollywood prepares for Sunday's Oscar ceremony, We hear why one US soldier is suing the makers of nine times nominated film The Hurt Locker. Tributes have poured in from across the political spectrum for Michael Foote, the former Labour leader who died yesterday aged 96. His election manifesto in 1983 may have been described as the longest suicide note in history, but he was a much-loved figure and a respected parliamentarian. In the studio, we have political commentator Martin Kettle, and in Westminster, we have Michael White. Gentlemen, how will Michael Foote be remembered, not just by the Labour Party, but by the country at large? Michael, let's start with you. Oh, uh, great romantic, literary and political romantic. A man straight out of the 18th century in some way, steeped in controversies and arguments and passions of the past. Steele, Swift, Milton, Byron, Shelley, Hazlitt, you name it. And yet someone who came extraordinarily close to the very centre of power in British life. He'd been a rebel all his life and then suddenly, when he's 60-ish, joins the government, holds up the Labour government in the 1970s. Extraordinary change of fortune. Amazing man. Also a man of the left. I mean, I think that's the really important thing people will remember him for. I mean, he was steeped in Milton and uh, Byron and all of that, certainly, but that would have made him a liberal. And he wasn't a liberal with a capital L. He, was, he certainly was a liberal with a small L. Uh, but he was a Labour man through and through. He joined the Labour Party uh, in the mid-1930s because of the poverty that he saw when he was working in Liverpool. And, uh, you know, he became very much the leader of the left after the death of his great hero, uh, Anarin Bevan. And uh, so, you know, although he was this kind of romantic figure of the past. He lived very much in the politics of the 20th century and the 20th century left. And of course, by 1983, when he was the leader of the Labour Party, uh, those politics were in real crisis. And uh, by the time he fought uh, the election in 1983, he was uh, a rather not just an old man, but an old-fashioned man. Well, Michael- I, you see, I'm not sure that I altogether go along with that, because <clears throat> um, Michael Foote never never wrote a a book of political theory. He was in favour of Parliament and in favour of democratic socialism, but he's always very vague on the details. So Martin is quite right to say he rejected old-fashioned liberalism in the 30s, went to the left of the Labour Party, but in an odd way, there's a liberal in him with a small L all his life. He was a liberty man, uh, even though, bundle of contradictions, he did some thoroughly um, uh, illiberal things in the course of his career. Michael, do you think his political career was a failure? 
yes, in a way. Uh, what I say about Michael Foote is he led a magnificent life. What a great life. This is life as it should be lived to the full. He wasn't a Puritan. He liked young women, uh, not to chase them, but he liked their company, young men too. He liked drink. He liked good food. He liked argument. And he loved his books and wrote 20 books, a uh, biography of, of his great hero, Bevan. But um, he, uh, his political causes, they didn't really succeed at all. You know, the Labour Party was split with the uh, breakaway SDP in 1983. And Tony Benn on the left-left gave him a hard time as well. He was betrayed by both the right and the left of his party. CND didn't work. Britain has still got nuclear weapons. Yeah. His beloved yeah, India. Yeah, Mike, he's so going to he's gonna get all these tributes, isn't yeah. he, today? He's already getting them from people like Tony Benn, yep. Ken Livingston. These were people who, uh, against whom he fought really hard. Uh, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that in some cases, some of the people who are tri- uh, giving him tributes today were people he really hated insofar yep. as M- Michael was capable of genuine hatred, which I'm not entirely sure whether he was. No, he wasn't, I agree. Yeah, But I mean, so, you know, there's a lot of romanticization of Michael Foote uh, going to go on inevitably, you know, when somebody dies, that 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 always happens. It's quite important to cut through the crap, I think, and see that, you know, Michael Foote, when he got into government, it was quite a tough guy. I mean, he wasn't the world's best negotiator, but he worked 24 hours a day to try and keep the Callaghan government afloat in the most uh, unforgiving of circumstances and probably against the tide of history as well. So, you know, he was... um uh, he, he worked very hard when he went into government rather late in his life. And, uh, you know, there was, I think, a chance uh, that as leader of the Labour Party, he might have pulled it together had the left been willing to uh, rally behind him. But they weren't. I mean, yeah. they, they were in love with Michael, they were in love with a fantasy of the left, which was unfulfillable. Michael, well, what's his legacy as a parliamentarian? Apart from the romance and the chasing of young men well, and women. Well, you know, Parliament is down on its luck these days in 2010. But when I first worked here, I'm sitting in the Commons now in the 70s. Michael Foote was Deputy Prime Minister. Brilliant, funny speeches. Jack Straw remembered one in the chamber where he said to the Tories, their new leader, Margaret Thatcher, how many Tory MPs sitting over there uh, support her economic policies? And they all so startled, only three of them remembered to put their hands up and everybody laughed. Typical Michael. Michael Foot trick. And uh, 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 so as a parliamentarian, he'll be remembered. Brilliantly funny speeches. Foot and Enoch Powell. It's one of the paradoxes of, of, of Foot's career that he had a lot of very unsavoury friends. Uh, Lord, Lord Be- Beaverbrook. Lord Beaverbrook, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. He and Bevan loved Lord Beaverbrook and he loved them. Beaverbrook was always giving him jobs. Uh, and Enoch Powell <laughs> and Foot um, uh, defeated reform of the House of Lords. But they were great mates. And, and great neither mates. of them went to the House of Lords after leaving the House of That's Commons. That's right. a really interesting thing. You know, Michael Foote, I think his last speech in the House of Commons was to say, you know, that he'd fought against the House of Lords for so long, he wasn't now going to go to the Lords, and he never did. And there aren't that many no. um, ex, ex-Labour cabinet ministers who can uh, That's make that right. claim. But it was typical Michael and why people liked him. And as Martin said, where in the 70s, the unions respected Michael. They didn't always agree with him, but they knew he was straight and he wasn't a sellout. And many people thought he gave far too much to the unions, That's uh, and so he did sometimes, including closed shop proposals, which don't look so very good these days. Uh, but, but he was very courageous coming late to, to government. And I, I noticed in The Guardian's obituary, a civil servant, just as Martin Kettle said a minute ago, <laughs> said he was a very good administrator, quotes, you posed a quite exceptional challenge to my powers of obstruction, <laughs> said the civil servant. But what he in wasn't, other words, he got his way. What he wasn't good at, Mike, I think <laughs> you and I remember, was the 1983 election. He was 
not a great campaigner. Uh, he fought a kind of old-fashioned romantic campaign hopeless. in 83. And it was a bit like, uh, you know, a sailing ship up against uh, uh, an, an ironclad destroyer. You're sounding like against... Michael Foot there. He was always quoting <laughs> Joseph Conrad, Tycoon, yes, Typhoon, oh, he, yeah. into, the, into the wind. But that's, an important, wind, thing, that's an important thing about uh, Michael Foot, isn't it? That um, nowadays politicians are career professional politicians. Martin, what was his relationship like with the current <sighs> Labour Party? Blair and uh, he and Foote got on really surprisingly well. If you remember, uh, Blair was first a parliamentary candidate in the period when Foote was leader. And as Foote once said, uh, you know, Nobody can be accused of being a political opportunist who started by being a Labour candidate during my leadership. Typical you know, Michael a nice, A very nice remark. And, uh, you know, I think every, every, Blair, I think, honoured Foote in his way, though he rejected almost everything that uh, Foote stood for as a, as a political uh, leader. Um, I think the main thing is that politics of, of now are just so different. Michael Foote used to talk all, endlessly in every speech that's being replayed. You know, he's always referring to the great labor movement. You, you don't even get uh, any politicians except maybe one or two in the campaign group talking about the labor movement anymore. Times have moved on. Martin Kettle and Michael White there. Hello, I'm Tom Clark and presenter of Politics Weekly. My co-presenter Allegra Stratton and I are taking our show on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop will be Manchester with our top columnists Polly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris. Come along and hear the programme being recorded and pitch questions to them yourselves. Tickets are £5 and to reserve places email us at politics.weekly at guardian.co.uk. She won her Olympic gold medal in Vancouver by racing headfirst down a track at up to 90 miles an hour on a skeleton bob called Arthur. And yesterday, Britain's Amy Williams returned to her home city of Bath on an open-topped bus. Stephen Morris was with her as she returned to her former school to describe her medal-winning final run. On my last run, to be honest, yeah, I, I can't even remember half of the run. Like, my mind was blank, but we always have our steers in our head and I knew exactly what I was going to do and what I had to do in each corner to get down and... Uh, and yeah, I mean, halfway down, I can't even remember how I got to the bottom, and I just got off my off my sled, and I was like, oh, what what happened then? So, yeah, again, I think when you're kind of in the moment, in the zone, I just kind of it just all came naturally. Ian Williams, you're Amy's dad. I am indeed. Very proud day for you. A very proud day, day indeed, and a very proud dad. Yes, um, proud in several ways. Proud as a father. Proud as a resident of Bath, which has a habit of producing, you know, all sorts of uh, interesting and uh, people, and um, uh, so I'll enjoy the parade from that point of view as well. I'm proud because I'm also uh, I work at the university, and the university's had such a, a role to play in all of this, and the support they've given to British skeletons has been fantastic. Uh, so it's going to be quite a day. when she did her two four runs and stayed up all, half the night to watch her. Are, are you big fans normally of this, this event? Yes, I like all sports. Oh yeah, we, we're, we're flag wavers. We like England, England, you know. Great Britain, I think we great have to Britain. say. Well, yeah. Great Britain, okay. Yes, brilliant. Great Britain. Yeah, we're very She's proud of her. She's a Bath She's girl. A bath girl and you? we're very Bathonian, yeah. We're very proud of her. Stephen Morris there reporting from Bath.
John Venables and Robert Thompson were both ten when they took two-year-old James Bulger from a shopping centre in Liverpool, beat him with bricks and an iron bar and dumped his body on a railway line. Venables, now 27 and living under a new identity, has been recalled to prison for breaching the terms of his licence, but the Home Secretary Alan Johnson told the BBC he cannot give any specific details about the case. Of course we understand that the public want to know more about this. At this stage, I'm afraid I can't say anything more. There's a worldwide injunction on John Venables in relation to his new identity, and there's also a, also a process to be gone through. So at this stage, I'm afraid I can't say anything more than you already know, which is to confirm the fact that he's back in custody. With me in the studio is our Home Affairs editor, Alan Travis. Alan, we still don't know why John Venables has been sent back to prison, but what possible reasons could there be? There are three possibilities as to why a personal life licence might be recalled to prison. The first is that they've committed a further serious offence. Secondly, it may be that their behaviour has deteriorated so much their probation officer uh, fears that they're going to become a risk to the public again. So without doing anything, they may yet still be recalled to prison. Or thirdly, uh, there may be minor breaches of their conditions for example, failing to turn up to appointments or even specific conditions in this case. For example, uh, both Venables and his co-defendant Thompson are both banned from entering the Liverpool uh, area or in any way trying to contact each other. Um, What complicates this case so much, apart from the fact that it's extremely high profile and it's such a memorable, iconic case, is that uh, there is an anonymity order which was put in place by Judge Butler Sloss back in 2001 uh, and both uh, the two of them have completely new identities and new lives. And they're even disclosing the nature of what has gone on and the reasons why the, why Venables is being recalled could begin to uh, tear away that and compromise that anonymity. And so there's now a debate going on uh, within Whitehall as to how far they can uh, meet that requirement for uh, more detail about what what's happened. Here I think we're going to see a real trial of strength between the tabloid media in particular and the government over whether or not they um, uh, given that anonymity should remain. Now the Ministry of Justice went to great lengths to create a new identity for him as well as the investment made in his rehabilitation. It's very early days yet but do you think this case could have implications for the rehabilitation of children who commit serious offences? Well without doubt the... Uh, Rehabilitation of Thompson and Venables has been long held up as uh, a model of the possibilities of uh, rehabilitation. And I think it's important to understand the atmosphere in which the trial of the two boys took place because a large section of public opinion believed them to be evil beyond redemption. They were repeatedly described in the press as being a campaign of hatred against them. And yet a serious investment was made in their rehabilitation to the extent that at least one of them we know has uh, passed A-levels, they've become articulate enough to express their emotions and remorse before a parole board in order to secure their release. And uh, although we don't know what the nature of what Venables has done to justify his recall to prison, the depth of uh, the most seriousness of what he's done will determine whether or not that rehabilitation case continues to uh, uh, bite and, and cut ac- across the feeling of popular feeling that they are just evil and have to be dealt with by being locked away forever. Alan Travis there, and there's more on this case at guardian.co.uk forward slash crime. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. This Sunday, the biggest stars in Hollywood will hit the red carpet for the Academy Awards. 
but a shadow has been cast over one of the most nominated films of the night, The Hurt Locker. I asked our New York correspondent, Ed Pilkington, why this has come to light now. I mean, the timing of this thing is quite suggestive, just a few days before the Oscar ceremony itself. Uh, Also suggestive is the fact that he's got a very tough nut lawyer on the case, a Michigan-based lawyer called Jeffrey Feiger, who's represented a lot of very difficult and controversial cases in the past, not least Jack Kevorkian, who was so-called Dr. Death, uh, a euthanasia doctor. The the, the lawyer is talking about a multi-million dollar lawsuit. So I think it's fair to say that what they really want more than anything else is cash, um, and that this is uh, the timing, you know, is suggestive that this is designed to create as maximum publicity and out of that force the producers of the film to hand over some money. Can you tell us more about what this soldier's claims are? Yeah, this soldier, Master Sergeant Geoffrey Sava, is claiming through his, his lawyer that he was the, the subject upon which Hurt Locker was entirely based. Um, just a little bit of history here. Hurt Locker was based upon the screenplay Uh, of a journalist um, called Mark Boll, who, uh, on behalf of Playboy magazine, actually embedded himself with uh, a group of American soldiers who were involved in uh, dismantling bombs and spent several weeks with the soldiers, out of which he wrote a Playboy magazine article to start with, and then it was such rich material he turned it into a screenplay which became Hurt Locker. The soldier in question claims that he was Will James, who, if you've seen the film is the, the, the main character in The Hurt Locker, and that a lot of the language, the, 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 the title Hurt Locker itself, was invented by this soldier. And the, uh, Sava says that the main character, James's nickname in the movie, Blaster One, was his own call signal when he was a soldier in Iraq. It's not the first bit of bother that the film's makers have run into, so what do you think all of this scandal and controversy will do to its chances of winning? Well, in short, this particular lawsuit will do nothing to damage its chances because voting has now ended uh, among the the members of the uh, Academy. So that won't touch it at all. As you say, there has been previous controversy, not least that one of the three producers of the film, Hurt Locker, a Frenchman who called Nicolas Chartier, who actually bankrolled the film to the tune of $15 million, million has been banned from attending the Oscar night on the grounds that last month he sent out an email to quite widely, it's not known exactly how widely, but quite widely, in effect, though not by name, slagging off Avatar, which is the main rival to Hurt Locker for the Best Picture category, uh, which is a sort of primary award that's given out on Sunday night. So uh, there has been a lot of controversy. That that might have affected a few votes, but I think most people who vote in these uh, Academy Awards will think that such controversies happen annually, they're very common, there's a lot of backbiting, there's a lot of skullduggery goes on, and what they'll do in the end is vote for the film that they thought most merited the award. Ed Pilkington there in New York. And you can follow all the results as they come in from Sunday's Oscar ceremony at guardian.co.uk forward slash film. You've been listening to Guardian Daily. It was presented by me, Riaz Atbat, and produced by Phil Maynard. Bye for now.